body aches at bedtime, Sierra Sil is a natural mineral supplement that supports joint health, calms inflammation, and we're so sure it'll work for you as it has for me and my husband for over 10 years. It has a money-back guarantee. Go to sierrasil.com, S-I-E-R-R-A-S-I-L, and use the code DRIFT for 10% off. Hello, I'm Erin, and welcome to DRIFT. Made possible by Envy Pillow. It's a Canadian-designed ergonomic pillow that cradles your face and aligns your spine and was created by Kathy and Kim, two registered nurses, with your health and the planet in mind. Learn more in the morning at Envy, E-N-V-Y, pillow.com. I'm so glad we found each other. Because here... We bring you stories that are meant to put you to sleep with sweet dreams, maybe a moral or two, or just a tale that you'll enjoy. I think this one, The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant, falls into all the categories. You could almost describe The Necklace as a Cinderella story told in reverse. But for me to tell you any more might give away the ending. Let's begin here as we like to do with a few moments of relaxation. Wherever you are, whether in bed or a chair, perhaps you're traveling and just need that little nudge to take your mind off of everything. Thank you for being here. We'll start with a deep breath in and out. And as we do it this time, Feel the breath entering your lungs through your nostrils or your mouth. Feel that life-giving air as you breathe in and out. Now I'll ask you to let your body feel heavy wherever you are. Lower your shoulders. Mm. And let your head feel heavy on your pillow or headrest. And now that your shoulders are doing a bit less of the heavy work, allow your arms and hands to just be limp. Take another deep breath in and let that life go right down to your feet. And if you're able, just swivel your ankles a bit and tell them to rest. Now your calves and your thighs, let them feel heavy. Your buttocks your back, around to your belly. And finally, with one last deep breath in, your chest full, and now out. Your chest and shoulders and neck are all relaxed, I hope. And if you're ready, let's drift. The girl was one of those pretty and charming young creatures who sometimes are born, as if by a slip of fate, into a humble family. In this case, one made up of clerks, office workers. She had no hope of an inheritance, no expectations, no way of being known, understood, or loved. There was never a chance she would be wed to anyone rich and distinguished. So she let herself be married to an office worker, a little clerk of the Department of School Education, 
She dressed plainly because she could not dress well. But she was unhappy, almost as if she had been born to a higher class, one from which she had piteously tumbled. It was as though if she could only emphasize her beauty, grace, and charm, she would be able to ascend to the station of those women she so completely envied. Mathilde suffered endlessly, knowing that she herself had been born to enjoy all of life's delicacies, all of its luxuries, unlike those for whom there is no hope, no desire to climb the rungs of society's ladder. She knew enough to feel deprived, for she was aware of what she was missing, and oh, how it ate at her. Nothing around her was good enough. She was distressed at the poverty of her dwelling, at the bareness of the walls that bore no fancy tapestries or noble artwork. She was saddened by the state of her home's furniture, its shabby chairs and truly ugly curtains. All those things tortured her and made dark her days. The sight of their maid who did her humble work in Mathilde's presence aroused in her despairing regrets and the most bewildering dreams. She thought of silent rooms with the highest of ceilings and walls hung with tapestry, illuminated by tall bronze candelabra. She imagined two great footmen in knee breeches who would sleep in the big armchairs made drowsy by the oppressive heat of the stove. She thought of long reception halls, hung with ancient silk, of the dainty cabinets containing priceless curiosities, and of the sweet, intimate, perfumed reception rooms, designed and kept just for chatting at five o'clock with intimate friends, with men famous and sought after, whom all women envy, and whose attention they all desire. Ah, the places that her imagination would take her during these reveries. These grand and tormenting places that she would never know. She sat down to dinner at the wobbly round table, covered with a tablecloth that was now stained from three straight days of use. Opposite sat her husband, who uncovered the soup and declared with a delighted air, Ah! the good soup. I don't know anything better than that, while she thought of anything but what steamed on her table. Her mind was on dainty dinners, of shining silverware, of tapestry that animated the walls, with ancient heroes and strange birds flying in the midst of a fairy forest. And she thought of delicious dishes served on marvelous plates and of the whispered gallantries to which you listen with a sphinx-like smile while you are eating the pink meat of a trout or the tender curls of fiddleheads. She had no gowns, no jewels, nothing, and she loved nothing but that. She felt made for that. She would have liked so much to please, to be envied, to be charming to be sought after. Alas, poor Mathilde.
She had a friend, a former schoolmate at the convent, who was rich and whom she did not like to go to see anymore because she felt so sad when she came home. But one evening, her husband came through the door with a triumphant air and holding a large envelope in his hand. There, said he, there is something for you. She tore the paper quickly and drew out a printed card which bore these words. The Minister of Education and Madame Georges Ramponneau request the honor of Monsieur and Madame Loiselle's company at the Palace of the Ministry on Monday evening, January 18th. Well, instead of being delighted, as her husband had hoped she would be, she threw the invitation on the table crossly, muttering, what do you wish me to do with that? Well, my dear, I thought you would be glad. You never go out, and this is such a fine opportunity. I went to great trouble to get it. Everyone wants to go. It is very select, and they are not giving many invitations to clerks. The whole official world will be there. She looked at him with an irritated glance and said impatiently, And just what do you expect me to wear to this grand occasion? He had not thought of that. He stammered, Why the gown you go to the theater in? It's lovely, and you look simply beautiful in it. He stopped, distracted, seeing that his wife was weeping. Two great tears ran slowly from the corners of her eyes toward the corners of her mouth. What's the matter? He asked. With considerable effort, she conquered her grief and replied while she wiped her wet cheeks. Nothing. I have no gown, and therefore I can't go to this ball. Give your card to some colleague whose wife is better prepared than I am. Her husband was in despair, but he would not give up. He said to her, come, let us see, Mathilde. How much would it cost a suitable gown, which you could use on other occasions? Something very simple. She reflected several seconds, making her calculations and wondering also what sum she could ask that wouldn't earn an immediate refusal and a frightened response from the economical clerk. Finally, she replied, hesitating, I don't know exactly, but I think I could manage it with 400 francs. At this, he grew a little pale, because he was laying aside just that amount to buy a gun and treat himself to a little shooting next summer on the plain of Nanterre with several friends who did so on a regular basis. He had always wanted to join them, and now, a dress. A dress was erasing that hope. But he said, very well, I will give you 400 francs, and I hope you're able to find a pretty gown. The day of the ball drew near, and Madame Loiselle seemed sad, uneasy, and even anxious. She had her gown all right. So what was the problem? It is exactly this question that was on the mind of her husband one evening. What is the matter, my dear? Please tell me. 
you have not been yourself for the past while. And she answered, to be honest with you, it annoys me to no end not to have a single piece of jewelry, not a single ornament, nothing to put on. I shall look poverty-stricken. I would almost rather not go at all. Hmm, said her husband, who had not thought of accessories for the gown which his wife had procured. And then he exclaimed, I know, you might wear natural flowers. They're very stylish at this time of year. For ten francs, you can get two or three roses. Despite his enthusiasm, his suggestion did nothing to ease her mind. She was not convinced. You don't understand, do you? There's nothing more humiliating than to look poor among other women who are rich. At this point, her husband, who had run out of good ideas, was also completely devoid of patience. I can't believe you, he cried, throwing his hands up in surrender and frustration. Go look up your friend, Madame Forestier, and ask her to lend you some jewels. You know her well enough to do that. She uttered a cry of joy. True, I never thought of it. The next day she went to her friend and told her of her distress. The grand woman was more than happy to assist her downcast friend and led her to her bedroom chambers. Madame Forestier went to a wardrobe with a mirror, took out a large jewel box, placed it on the bed, opened it, and said to Madame Loiselle, Choose, my dear. She saw first some bracelets, then a pearl necklace, then a Venetian gold cross set with precious stones of admirable workmanship. She tried on the ornaments before the mirror, hesitated, and could not make up her mind. She kept asking, Oh, I don't know. Haven't you any more? Why, yes. Look further. I don't know what you like. Suddenly, she discovered, in a black satin box, a superb diamond necklace, and her heart pounded with desire. Her hands trembled as she took it. She fastened it round her throat, outside her high-necked collar, and was lost in ecstasy at her reflection in the mirror. Then she asked, hesitating, filled with anxious doubt. Will you please lend me this? Oh, please? Why, yes, certainly. Wear it in good health, my dear. She threw her arms round her friend's neck, kissed her passionately, then fled with her treasure. The night of the ball arrived. Madame Loiselle was a great success. She was prettier than any other woman present, elegant, graceful, smiling, and wild with joy. All the men looked at her, asked her name, sought to be introduced. All the attaches of the cabinet wished to waltz with her. She was even singled out and mentioned by the minister himself. She danced with rapture, with passion, intoxicated by pleasure, forgetting all of her troubles in the triumph of her beauty.
in the glory of her success, in a sort of cloud of happiness, made up of all of this attention and comprised of all admiration, these awakened desires, and of that sense of triumph which can be so sweet to a woman's heart, or a man's heart, for that matter. Like a fairy tale princess, but without a curfew, she left the ball at about four o'clock in the morning. Her husband had been sleeping since midnight in a little deserted parlor with three other gentlemen whose wives were also enjoying the ball. He was about to throw over her shoulders the wraps he had brought, the modest and well-worn woolen wraps of common life, the poverty of which contrasted with the elegance of the ball dress. She saw them and made a face to her husband which plainly said she wished to escape quickly into the January night so as not to be noticed by the other women who were wrapping themselves in the finest outer garments. Monsieur Loisel held her back, saying, Wait here for a bit, my dear. You will catch cold outside. I will call a cab. But she did not listen to him and rapidly descended the stairs. When they reached the street, they could not find a carriage and began to look for one, shouting after the cabmen passing at a distance. There was none to be found. They trudged through the night towards the Seine, in despair, shivering with cold. At last, they found on the quay one of those ancient nightcabs which, as though they were ashamed to show their shabbiness during the day, are never seen round Paris until after dark. It took them to their dwelling in the Rue des Martyrs, and with a deflated air surrounding them both, they mounted the stairs to their flat. All was ended for her. Her fairy tale night had come to a close. As for him, he reflected that he must be at his job at ten o'clock that morning. She removed her wraps before the mirror, so as to see herself once more in all her glory before crawling into her bed to cry herself to sleep. But suddenly, she shrieked. It was gone. She no longer had the necklace around her neck. What is the matter with you? demanded her husband, already half undressed and half asleep. She turned toward him. I have, I have lost Madame Forestier's necklace, she cried. He stood up, bewildered. Impossible. They looked among the folds of her skirt, of her cloak, in her pockets, everywhere, but did not find it. You're sure you had it on when you left the ball? Yes, I felt it in the vestibule of the minister's house. But if you had lost it in the street, we would have heard it fall. It must be in the cab. Yes, probably. Did you take his number? No. And you, didn't you notice it? No. They looked at each other in sheer panic. At last, Loiselle put on his clothes. I shall go back on foot, said he, over the whole route to see whether I can find it. Oh, please, yes, do find it. Look everywhere. Find the necklace. 
or I don't know what will become of me. He pulled up the collar of his long coat and went out. She sat waiting on a chair in her ball dress. She had neither the strength nor the will to go to bed. She felt overwhelmed, lifeless, her mind a blank. At last, she heard the lock as her husband returned at about seven o'clock. Running to where he stood, she asked him breathlessly, Did you find it? Did you find the necklace? Despondent, he shook his head and looked down at the floor, down at his wet shoes. He had found nothing. After a cup of strong tea, exhausted but undeterred, he went back out. First, he stopped at police headquarters and then paid a visit to every newspaper office in the city to offer a reward. He went to the cab companies, everywhere, in fact, that he was led by even the slightest spark of hope. At home, Madame Loisel waited all day in the same condition of mad fear before this terrible calamity. Loisel returned at night with a hollow, pale face, he had discovered nothing. She sobbed into her hands at the hopelessness of her situation, but her husband had had many hours of walking to think about what they must do. You will write to your friend, said he, that you have broken the clasp of her necklace and that you are having it mended. That will give us time to turn round. She wrote at his dictation, and he went out once more to leave the note at her door. At the end of a week, they had lost all hope. Loiselle, who had aged five years in the course of a few days, was out of ideas. It was time to face the music. So he declared that they must now consider how to replace that ornament. The first thing was to find out just how much the piece was worth. They took the black satin box that had contained it and went to the jeweler whose name was found within. He consulted his books. It was not I, madame, who sold that necklace. I must simply have furnished the case. Then they went from jeweler to jeweler, searching for a necklace like the other, trying to recall it both sick with regret and grief. They found, in a shop at the Palais Royal, a string of diamonds that seemed to them exactly like the one they had lost. It was worth 40,000 francs. They could have it for 36. So they begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days yet, and they made a bargain that he should buy it back for 34,000 francs in case they should find the lost necklace before the end of February. 40,000 francs, a small fortune which was, of course, well beyond their means. However, Loiselle possessed 18,000 francs, which his father had left him. He would borrow the rest, the other half. He did borrow asking a thousand francs of one, five hundred of another, three hundred elsewhere. He gave notes, took up ruinous obligations, 
and dealt with the untrustworthy and unsavory nature of some lenders. He compromised all the rest of his life, risked signing a promissory note without even knowing whether he could meet it. The man was frightened by the troubles he knew were yet to come, by the deep misery that was about to fall upon him, by the prospect of all the physical sacrifices and moral tortures that he was to suffer. And carrying all these woes on his slumped shoulders, he went to get the new necklace laying upon the jeweler's counter, 36,000 francs. When Madame Loiselle took back the necklace, Madame Forestier said to her with a chilly manner, you should have returned it sooner, I might have needed it. She did not open the case, as her friend had so much feared. If she had detected the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she not have taken Madame Loiselle for a thief? From that day onward, Madame Loiselle suddenly was familiar with the horrible existence of those truly in need. She carried her burden, however, with sudden heroism. That dreadful debt must be paid. She would pay it. They dismissed their servant. They moved to humbler accommodations, and they rented a room and allowed a stranger to live with them under their roof. She came to know what heavy housework meant and the many and monotonous chores of the kitchen. She washed the dishes, using her dainty fingers and rosy nails on greasy pots and pans. She washed the dirty linens, the shirts, and the dishcloths, which she dried upon a line. She carried the wet garbage down to the street every morning and carried up the water, stopping for breath at every landing and dressed like a woman of the people, which she always was. She went to the fruit market, the grocer, and the butcher, a basket on her arm, bargaining, meeting with impertinence, defending her miserable money, every single cent of it. Every month they had to meet some notes, renew others, or beg for more time in which to pay their debts. Her husband worked evenings, doing accounting work for businessmen, and late at night, he often copied manuscripts for five cents a page. And so their lives continued in this harsh and unforgiving way, day by day, year by year, until ten years had passed. At the end of the decade, they had paid everything, every one, with the rates of usury and the accumulations of the compound interest. At last. Their books would no longer be penned in red ink. Madame Loiselle looked old now. She had become the woman of impoverished households, strong and hard and rough, with unkempt hair, skirts askew and red hands. She talked loud while washing the floor with great swishes of water. But sometimes, when her husband was at the office, she sat down near the window and she thought of that glorious evening of long ago, of that ball where she had been so beautiful and so admired. It felt to her as though hers was the story of Cinderella told in reverse. And instead of a missing slipper, her loss that sparkling night was of a precious piece of jewelry.
What would have happened if she had not lost that necklace? Or if some dashing hero had found it? Who knows? Who knows? How life can turn in a flash. How small a thing is needed to make or ruin us. One evening, having gone to take a walk in the Champs-Élysées to refresh herself after the back-breaking labors of the week, she suddenly spotted a woman who was leading a child. It was Madame Forestier, still young, still beautiful, still charming. Madame Loiselle felt moved. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly. And now that she had paid, she would tell her all about it. Why not? She went up to her. Good day, Jeanne. The other woman, astonished to be so casually addressed by this plain housewife, did not recognize her at all and stammered, But, madame, I do not know you. You must be mistaken. No, I am Mathilde Loiselle. Her friend uttered a cry. Oh, my poor Mathilde, how you have changed. Yes, I have had a pretty hard life since I last saw you, and great poverty. And as a matter of fact, if I may, it is because of you. Of me? How so? Do you remember that diamond necklace you lent me to wear at the ministerial ball? Yes, what about it? Well, I lost it. The woman once again eyed her with confusion. What do you mean, you brought it back? I brought you back another exactly like it, and it has taken us ten years to pay for it. You can understand that it was not easy for us, for us who had nothing. But at last it is ended, and I am very glad. Madame Forestier had stopped. You say that you bought a necklace of diamonds to replace mine? Yes, you never noticed it then. They were very similar. And she smiled with a joy that was at once proud and ingenuous. Madame Forestier, deeply moved, took her hands. Oh, my poor Mathilde. Why, my necklace was imitation. It was worth at most only 500 francs. Alors, this is where Guy de Maupassant ends his morality tale, one which has been passed on for nearly a century and a half. What does it all mean? Is it a reminder that beauty is only skin deep? Or are we to see how Monsieur Loisel and his contentment with his lot in life made him the better off of the two by far? Perhaps you, as I did, find the threads of truth in this story to be primary examples of reality versus appearance. How one can aspire to so many things and be on the inside made ugly by envy. How something can be beautiful on the outside and be a total fake, not unlike the necklace that is at the heart of this story. And with that, I will wish you a good night and sweet dreams. <laughs>